But here's my question for you this morning. Do you believe, like, like really believe in life after death? Do you believe in life after death? Chris, Christian Aid have this great uh, slogan of theirs that we believe in life before death, which kind of fuels their vision to see an end to world poverty. But Christian Aid also believes in life after death. All they are doing with this particular slogan is just maintaining a kind of present and future gospel perspective. But what about us? Do we believe in life beyond the grave? The the question or questions of of Jesus, and there are two of them we're going to look at this morning, uh, they depend probably wholly on the existence of life beyond the grave. Because if there's nothing after this, if this is all there is, then these two questions of Jesus that we're going to look at from Matthew 16 kind of ring hollow. They're a bit irrelevant. Here's the two questions. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? You see, we are physical and spiritual beings. We've got a body. We've got a soul. And in this life, they are closely united. But in death, they become separated. But one day, according to Scripture, God will reunite them again in a new resurrection body that will live with him forever. Although that depends upon your commitment to Jesus now. You see, unless you follow Jesus in this life, and this is something we're going to be looking at this morning, unless you follow Jesus in this life... Is that my fault, James, is it? Yeah. I should have shaved. A lot of you have been thinking that for about a year now. Is that, is that better now, James? You see, unless you follow Jesus in this life, you will forfeit your soul in the next. And I know that is a strong thing to say. That may, it may even offend some people here this morning. And so these questions... Both of them are incredibly important. And the reason they're incredibly important is because they have eternal consequences. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to uh, Matthew 16. I know we don't have pew Bibles anymore. If you're sitting near someone who has a Bible or who has it on their phone, then uh, please do share with them. Uh, And we're actually going to pick up from where we left off. I think it's three weeks ago now. And the key question that we looked at three weeks ago, some of you might remember this, was this question that Jesus asked his disciples. Very, it's a very personal question. Who do you say that I am? And you'll remember that Peter kind of stepped forward with that big, bold, and amazing confession when he said in response to this question, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of the living God. And in response to that answer, Jesus said, Peter, you are are personally blessed. 
And so, let's stand together and pick up from there. Matthew 16, I'm going to start at verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have the mind in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Grab a seat. Up, up to this point in the kind of story of Jesus, Jesus has dropped a few subtle hints about his coming fate. But from here on in, from Matthew 16 and from verse 21, Jesus becomes explicit. Jesus becomes direct in what lies ahead and kind of what looms large in his life. And the three things that Jesus says are coming down the tracks at him are suffering and death and resurrection. But that, as far as the disciples were concerned, made absolutely no sense whatsoever. The Christ, the Messiah that they had been waiting for. He was meant to be a revolutionary liberator, not a suffering Messiah. And so Peter, possibly speaking again on behalf of the rest of the disciples, he steps forward and he takes Jesus to one side. And he rebukes him. He says, Jesus, that's never going to happen. This talk of suffering and death and and resurrection, whatever that is, never going to happen. Can't happen. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the liberator. You're the revolutionary one. Jesus' response to Peter this time is in sharp contrast to his response, maybe even, maybe only a few moments ago, when he said, Peter, you're blessed. You're a rock. This might only be a matter of moments. It may be a matter of days. Who knows? But this time, this is what Jesus says to him. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, you mouthpiece of Satan. And if nothing else, and I did allude to this three weeks ago, this provides an insight into the ups and downs of Christian living and discipleship. 
And it kind of reminds us that although we can be in a really good place with God one moment, we can be in a spiritual high at one moment. But we are prone to get it wrong in the very next moment. To make a mess of things. And Peter kind of goes from a place where he is blessed by Jesus, he's called a rock, to a place where he's called Satan. And if you're here this morning, and as you reflect on the week that has just passed, you can't believe what you've done. You can't believe what you've thought or what you've said, then maybe Peter's story and his major mess up will provide some perspective for you. Only, I don't say that as a kind of excuse or even as an explanation, but rather as a reminder that following Jesus is a journey that requires day-by-day commitment and constant reshaping. This is a discipleship process. And therefore, as Jesus keeps talking now into this situation, not only to Peter, but to the rest of his disciples, do you know what Jesus does from this point on? He reminds them about the true nature of discipleship. That's what he goes on to do, and it's in that context that Jesus asks the two questions that we are going to look at eventually. But as he begins to speak into those two questions, he speaks into them as he explains to his disciples, listen, this is the nature of true discipleship that I'm about to remind you of. But before we we get to that, let me mention one other aspect of Peter's less than divine intervention. You see, Peter was clearly shocked by Jesus' reference to the road that lay ahead. Sorry, the road that lay ahead. This apparently hard road that would lead to the pain and the suffering, even death. And and so Peter, as I say, can't quite accept or believe that Jesus was right. Surely it's not meant to be like that. Surely God is for you. And if God is for you, why would he take you into a place of suffering? Death. Surely the path that you are on, Jesus, should be a lot smoother than that, a lot nicer, a lot better. If God is with you, if God is for you, then none of this negative stuff, this difficult stuff is going to happen. And you can understand Peter's perspective. But for Jesus, as he listens to Peter saying this, it rings alarm bells, and possibly it also brings back to Jesus memories of those 40 days in the wilderness whenever Satan tried to derail him and distract him from God's purposes whenever Satan tempted him to the limit. And so in this incident, as Peter speaks, as Peter rebukes him, Jesus recognizes an old enemy, but in an even more dangerous form. Here's how one writer puts it. For none are more formidable instruments of temptation than well-meaning friends who care more for our comfort than our character. You see, Jesus saw what was going on and he called it. Jesus knew there was something bigger and better at stake and so he rebuked his well-meaning friend, which can't have been easy but it was absolutely necessary. And and so let me ask you a question. Let me flip this round. Do you have people in your life 
friends who care more for your character than your comfort. Do you? Do you have companions on this journey, this discipleship process, who care more about your character than your comfort? Who aren't going to tempt you to take the easy way out? Who aren't going to tempt you to avoid the tough stuff of life? But who are going to encourage you, who are going to challenge you, who are going to call you on in your walk with God? even though at times they know they're calling you on to a more difficult path. We need people like that. Are you that sort of a person to a friend? Are you willing to speak hard words into their lives that will call them on rather than just stroke them? But back to the text, because Jesus grabs, as I say, this opportunity to teach his disciples and Peter about the nature of true discipleship, what it actually means to be a Christian, what it actually means to save your soul. And, and what Jesus does here is he effectively issues a call to recommitment. Remember, he is talking to his disciples here. And so he issues a call of recommitment. And maybe for some of us here this morning who are Christians, we need to hear this call again. I did nothing. <laughs> and so here is the call of, of Jesus again. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow. And this is what Jesus says immediately after these words of rebuke. You see, self-denying, cross-carrying Jesus followers, those are true disciples. People carrying crosses or horizontal crossbeams was a common sight in that time and in that context. Everyone knew when they saw someone carrying this horizontal crossbeam that they were on a one-way journey. Everyone who saw someone carrying these things knew that person isn't coming back. That person's life, as they have known it, is over. And so whenever Jesus laid down this challenge, whenever Jesus spelt out this definition of true discipleship, nobody missed what Jesus was saying. This was about self-denial. This was about ultimate surrender. This was about giving up all of me for all of you. And so as Bonhoeffer said in that classic quote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And I don't want to head off on too much of a, of a tangent, but one interesting thought to bear in mind is that although this imagery was graphic and it was compelling, the disciples didn't know at this stage that Jesus himself was one day going to carry a cross. That one day Jesus himself was going to be strung up. Yes, he had just told them he was going to suffer and he was going to die, but he hadn't mentioned anything at this stage about crucifixion. Although the time would come whenever those disciples wrote about it and would have known exactly how significant these words of Jesus really were. 
I have referred to this before, and, and I, I kind of don't make any apology for referring to this next bit again, but how many times have you heard the expression, to come to Christ, all you have to do is accept him as your Lord and Savior? Many times have you heard that said? All you have to do? Not according to Jesus. Not according to Jesus. If you want to follow Jesus, it's not just about accepting him, it's about denying yourself to the point where you bear your cross daily in order to submit your very all to him. And I say daily there because whenever Luke was writing his gospel, the way he recalled Jesus defining discipleship was this. If anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross. And here's what Luke adds in, daily and follow. See, this is about a day-by-day commitment and journey. We don't just lay our lives down once and that's it like some kind of one-off act of spiritual martyrdom. Following Jesus involves a daily dying. The emphasis here and the emphasis throughout Scripture is on sacrificial living. Offer up your bodies as living sacrifices. It's about a way of life, not a decision. It's about a process, it's about a journey, it's about a day-by-day discipleship journey. And sometimes we, we, we hear people talking about the crosses we all have to bear, which tends to refer to some specific problem or problems that people have to face and deal with, but they're not the crosses that are spoken about here in Matthew's gospel. This cross-bearing is about an alternative way of life where living for God rather than living for self is the path we have chosen to walk each day. So yes, those of us who are Christians, we do have our crosses to bear. Every single day, we gotta take it up and follow. And this was the path that Jesus walked. This was the path that Jesus set out on from Matthew 16, verse 21. And as we have often quoted before, whenever John was writing his first little letter, 1 John, in chapter two, he said this, see those who claim to live in God? You've got to walk as Christ walked. So this is the path that those of us who call ourselves Christians must walk. And so this dying to self, this submission to God's will, this not my will, but yours be done mentality, this is the essence of true and authentic discipleship. And in this incident in Matthew 16, Jesus is helping, and remember, he's helping his already disciples. He's helping to remind them what this actually means, what this involves. And although they didn't always get it, and although I don't always get it, Jesus 
took the opportunity in this moment to press the refresh button. And really that is all I am wanting to do this morning when it comes to following Jesus. I just want to press the refresh button and remind each and every one of us that this is about a daily dying to self, picking up our cross and following Jesus. But Jesus doesn't stop after that definition. Because it's true, you could argue, as you hear Jesus giving this definition of discipleship, you could argue, do you know something, Jesus? This appears rather negative and off-putting. This is too difficult, Jesus. This is too demanding. But as we read on and as we listen in again, we detect that there's another dimension to this definition. A new life dimension. There's a hint, at least another hint, of resurrection. Because although Jesus himself was going to literally die for this, he will, as he said he would, rise again. And so although Jesus calls his disciples to give up, to lay down their lives, it's as they do and when they do that they discover and experience new life, true life, life as, was, as it was meant to be, which is why Jesus then goes on to share in verse 24 a paradox. Look at this with me. And by the way, this paradox, this next quote of Jesus is the most frequent quote and saying of Jesus that you will find in the New Testament. This one trumps them all. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. You see, self-denial actually brings self-fulfillment. Submission to God's will is profoundly life-giving. The recent uh, Goo Goo Dolls single, So Alive, includes this arresting line. Never gonna live if you're too scared to die. You're never gonna live if you're too scared to die. I have no idea exactly what the Goo Goo Dolls meant by that phrase, but you know what it does for me? It echoes what Jesus says here. If we're prepared to die to self, we will truly live. Not only now, but forever. Which then brings us back to the mor this morning's searching and personal question. Don't worry, this is not me starting now at the question. This is me finishing with the question, so you don't need to panic. But this is where it brings us to this question. What good will it be then? Remember, he's, he's been speaking to his already disciples. He has redefined discipleship. He has set out this paradox that there is, even though it all sounds negative and off-putting and demanding and difficult. Jesus said, listen, see if you lose your life, for me, you'll find it. And then he asks this question. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels and then he will reward each person according to what he, they have done. This was a massive challenge to his first disciples and it remains a massive challenge to us. You see, you can go your own way. Every single one of us can go our own way. Th that's our choice. We can do our own thing. We can live for self rather than deny self. You can lay down your cross rather than pick up your cross daily. You can follow the ways of this world by all means or you can follow 
the ways of Jesus. But here's the kickback. Here's the risk. Here's what's at stake. You can go your own way and get so much. You can even gain, says Jesus, the entire world. But you see in the process, you see if you choose to walk that particular path, which so many people do choose to walk, you need to know something. You will lose your soul. You will lose your soul. You will lose the real you. And so in answer to these questions, what good is it? It's no good. What can we exchange? Nothing. Nothing matters as much as this. Because you see, at the end of the day, or rather, at the end of all of our lives, and there is an explicit reference to this in verse 27, which is on the screen. At the end of our lives, there is life beyond. There is life after death. And we are going to have to give an account of our lives and what we have lived for and what path we have chosen to walk. And whether we are rewarded in the next life for what we have done depends on one thing. It depends on one thing, our commitment to Jesus. Our commitment to Jesus. Because you see, without surrendering our present life to Christ, without self-denying, cross-carrying, Jesus following, without surrendering our present life to Christ, we cannot have eternal life with Christ. And no amount of gain in the world's eyes will save our souls. And so as we wrestle with this question, and as we, maybe rather, as we confront again this morning the call to discipleship, how are we going to respond?